This is the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I have a fan favorite, Mel Duncan. Mel, how are you? I'm doing great, George. So good to be with you today. Likewise. And so for our listeners, this is a conversation I've wanted to have since I started this podcast. It's on church administration. And I thought, what better individual ruling elder to uh, to have this discussion with than, than Mel? Mel is the clerk of Calvary Presbytery. He's the church administrator at Second Pres Church in Greenville. He's the executive director of the Gospel Reformation Network. So lots of administrative experience there, but also recognized just denominationally as a as a man who knows how to do things decently and in order and with a smile on his face, I'll say. <laughs> You're very kind, George. I enjoy talking with you about this topic, partly because this is your life story as well, too. Uh, the Lord has used yes. you in a variety of ways to serve the church, both as a ruling and a teaching elder. And, and I know that you and I have had conversations about these type of things, and I look forward to doing this uh, for this wonderful podcast today. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Yes, I. Yes, so for listeners, I think it's it's. Uh, you know, I always often say that uh, I've been a ruling elder longer than I've been a teaching elder. But I was a mechanical engineer with Procter and Gamble, and really on the more managerial side, I was managing teams and projects uh, of a technical nature. And the Lord uh, developed in me uh, administrative giftings, and so when I was a ruling elder at our, our church in South Florida, those gifts were recognized. And more and more, I was able to contribute, not just on the teaching side of things, but on uh, helping the senior pastor there with navigating starting ministries and and, and doing ministries differently and managing uh, certain staff scenarios. And, and in that, just seeing the need for good church administration, because when it's not good, the church hurts. It's the church suffers for, from confusion and confusion hurts people. And so, yes, definitely wanted to have this, this conversation. I guess what we'll start with is how long have you been in this role? Have yeah. you done, what did you do before this? How long have you been a ruling elder in conjunction with this? Let's get like some of the basics yeah. of, of you in this. Yeah. So I'm in my 12th year as the church administrator here. I was an elder uh, for about um, about a decade before I became the church administrator. And then I'd been a deacon for six or so years before I became an elder. A uh, little unusual, this is a church I grew up in. Uh, and I'm a, I, I, I like to say that my goal uh, is to end as a member in good standing of Second Church. Uh, <laughs> this is where I was born. This is where I'm raising my family. And Lord willing, uh, this is where I'll go uh, before I go to heaven. And uh, before that, I was involved in the commercial printing business. Uh, we had a family uh, mom and pop print shop that I managed after my dad died. And I did that for about 20 years. Uh, along the way, I developed some gifts in uh, because a lot of our printing business was involved with nonprofit organizations. I developed a lot of interest in how uh, nonprofit organizations worked and how they were governed and I uh, just had a lot of, back in those days, the printing industry was a lot more involved with people uh, than they are now because I think the personal computer's done a lot of things that an old commercial printer used to do for folks. Uh, but we were part of people's strategies and their communication methods, and we helped them realize their mission and vision, and we tried to connect them to their audience. And so through that, I, I enjoyed an interest and a love for helping people uh, with that. 
Uh, along the way, I did some, some work for some Christian organizations that were involved in media like Ligonier and the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. And some of that was straight up development work or church relations work. And all along uh, my professional career uh, in that world of printing and working with nonprofits, uh, I was a Sunday school teacher and a basketball coach for church league basketball and, and an active member here at Second, I then became a deacon then a ruling elder. As a young ruling elder, I was asked to um, be involved with a kind of a long-range planning uh, group. And it's interesting, I did that twice, and both of those ended up sort of setting the stage for the church coming to me to be a church administrator. We identified uh, what were the next building projects we needed to do, and then we looked at if, if the Lord continued to bless us and we grew, what sort of structural things did we need to put in place so that Second's uh, mission and vision could be served and our congregation could be well-resourced? And unbeknownst to me, while I was involved with those long-range planning uh, groups, uh, the Lord was using that to, to prepare both me and the church for me to come on board as a full-time staff member. And so uh, Rick Phillips comes to Greenville uh, our beloved pastor in the summer of 2007, and uh, the the Lord blessed the church. We had some growth, and uh, the elder said, you know, we really need to kind of get ahead of this, and uh, like a lot of churches, we had a part-time administrative assistant church secretary that was doing a lot of different things, and the, the elders got in front of that and said, let's, let's see if there's a way to resources and and so they approached me about doing it and it was something I honestly that I was was kind of hoping they would do I enjoyed this sort of work I've always been a very active uh, volunteer and and I've tried to serve on everything that I can and so it was a real joy and I've always approached it as a calling um, it, it was um, it's just real fun to work in the church you get to help people uh, I'm a big believer in, you know, the John Piper brothers. We are not professionals. You really can't use business as the model for how you do the church. You really have to approach it either like a farm or the family. Uh, you just have to have a long-term perspective. And it was just the perfect kind of thing for me to do. And so uh, when I uh, uh, came on board, uh, I... I just loved it. And and I got to work with somebody who I really respected and enjoy working with and for and do that in the context of my regular sessional ministry. So in a lot of ways, George, it's it's been a, a dream to do this job and I enjoy it. Amen. I love that because that so much of that resonates with with my own experience. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you was if if you're the first in this position in this capacity at your church and you said yeah. yes yeah i am yeah. And, and i'm a guinea pig a little bit in that sense we've we've had uh, uh multiple ministers on staff over the years but we've never had uh and we've had part-time music people and facilities people but we've never had somebody quite like me um you know church administration is an interesting business because it's an implication of what the deacons do and the session does. And uh, the, the it, it involves things that are necessary, but aren't necessary. There, there's no, um, uh, like the instructions for building the temple or the tabernacle, uh, there, there, there isn't that kind of specificity. And um, 
there, there's an element of it that involves facilities. There's an element of it that involves finances. There's an element of it that involves communication. Uh, and, and then the, the big thing that I've always come to see in it is that what a good church administration plan does is that it empowers your officers to be officers. Yes. So you're resourcing them to be able to make decisions. You're making good recommendations. Uh, your, your officers are working day jobs. And so what you want to do is you want to give them good information that's been well vetted and well thought out. And you want to allow them to exhaust you so that they can make good decisions on behalf of the church. And so that's what I try to do. I try to bring together the different threads of what happens in the church. Um, I also uh, very early on in this job learned that you've got to learn how to exercise authority. And it's helpful that I'm a ruling elder because I think people in a Presbyterian church are going to respect the authority of an officer though it's not mandatory for someone in my position to be that way. It's just helpful in my position. And what you want to do is you want to exercise authority, but not abuse it. And so you want to really master whatever the policy is of your church, understand the culture of your church, and try to help your church within its existing footprint to grow. Uh, and, and sometimes that's going to be a conversation about facilities. Sometimes it's going to be a conversation about programs. Oftentimes, it's going to be about how you're developing your volunteers. And then most importantly, it's going to be how are you helping your pastors, your elders, and your deacons lead in their positions. And uh, that, that's something that I enjoy doing. And I, I, think, um, I think it's something that's very useful uh, in a church that, that, can, that has the means to do this. because How, it, how many members do you have? Uh, so we're about a 700-member church, and we have 18 ruling elders and 26 deacons. We have a very active women's ministry. We have a number of other ministries, our choirs, and uh, we, we have a, a pretty active mercy ministry team. And all of those are... Uh, organisms that exist and have to coexist and share the church's resources and and cooperate on the calendar uh, and at times support one another uh, for, the, for the greater good of the church. And so, uh, it, it, George, it's, it's a little bit like being an air traffic controller. Yes, no, uh, that's, that's right. You're trying to land planes and get people, you know, in and out of the, the, the airport as quick as you can in a safe way. Um, and, and it's a little bit like, you know, a traffic cop, uh, and it, it's often, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of the mayor of a small town. You, you've got to make sure that the water district is working and the, and the, and the trash is getting collected on Mondays and all the little things that happen in a, in a community, you want to make sure those things are happening. So, so how, how many members were at the church when you started in the role? Yeah, we we've about doubled. Uh, right, we, we were we were in the four hundreds when I started the role. Right, so let me let me key in on a, a number of things you said because I think they they kind of set the stage for some of the context of of why this conversation. So I, I have a theory, and you can you could jump in on it if you think if you want. But the reason this is needed now, where in the past it wasn't, maybe, is at, at least in South Florida, what we found was people's lives are a lot, a lot more busy yeah. and people's 
entire life is no longer revolving around the church. Now I, I do understand in Presbytopia there in Greenville that there more like that, that is, but like in a lot of places in this, in this country, there's <laughs> even, even in Greenville, South Carolina, the, the tent, the, the, uh, the sands of time are, are slipping away. And, yeah. Right. And right. so the, the, the point is that a lot of times, you know, you may have had a, a number of volunteers put in 20 hours at the church you, you, yeah. and, but that's changing. And yeah. so in, in, on top of it, things have become more complex rather than more simple yeah. when it comes to like this digital age and, and computers, you mentioned the printing business, for instance. And I think, I think that's a good paradigm for what's happened to the church. Like it used to be that the, the church secretary or administrator was sending paper letters right. in envelopes right. to congregants and producing a print bulletin or newsletter every week. But now more and more that role needs to be managed, needs to be done by somebody who understands how to make graphics and uh, use social media and communicate more effectively through all these other avenues as opposed to one, one stream. And so what happened in the printing world has happened in the church. And another dynamic that, that I noticed a lot of the ministries that were longstanding ministries and churches coming into the, the turn of the century, you know, the 2000s, were ministries that were meant to meet needs of a different context and generation. Yeah. And churches are continuing those things and, and seeing less participation and really kind of frustrated about that. Yeah. Uh, and yet it's very hard to stop or you know, tear down those, those sacred cows or whatever they're called, because there's, they mean something and they are important. But like, if the church needs to now shift and go in a different direction to meet new needs for a new demographic and a new community, those changes are, are very difficult. Yeah. And what I often would tell our church in South Florida, so it was similar to when you started, it was in the, the, uh, the upper 300s. We, we don't have all the resources to operate like a large church. And yet we need to operate. We can't operate like a small church. There's too many people tripping over themselves for access to the same resources. And so we need to find a way to uh, have a level of, for lack of a better word, professionalism in what we try to do here, but not lose the family feel that we love in this church. But like, it just clears away the frustration. So similar to you, I was the first one in that role and it, uh, it helps because I know what it is to be an elder on a session and you make these decisions. And now this, the, the, the senior solo lead pastor has to like execute all this stuff. Four weeks later, you come to the meeting and it's like, nothing's been done. And you're, it's like, well, yeah, he's, preaching and teaching and and discipling and doing visitation and a funeral and this, you know, it's like, and so it really become the the role really becomes an arm of the session. Anything I said there, uh, trigger, um, resonate with you. Absolutely. Um, a, a good staff member is going to be empowered by decisions of the elders to make changes. And he's going to do that in cooperation with either the ministry team or the committee that executes that vision. And so uh, absolutely that resonates. The the, the minister, uh, you, you know, Harry Reader, the late great Harry Reader used to love to say, 
the problem with the PCA is that teaching elders do what ruling elders do and ruling elders do what deacons should be doing. <laughs> I, to me, it's exactly what happens. You, the, yes. the minister needs to be praying and visiting people who are dying and visiting the newborn mom and dad for the first time and, and, um, and, and thinking about what he wants to preach on and, and, um, doing marriage counseling and, you know, the, the kind of things that eternally are, are frankly, what's going to make a difference. And the, the, the color of the carpet kind of things, the, the amount of money that the, the youth minister is going to get on the beach trip, you know, that those kind of things are exhausting, soulless activities that are necessary, but frankly have very little to do with the mission and vision of the church. And so it, it's useful uh, to structure it. And uh, my, my pastor loves to say, and I think we're going to get to some of the melisms later yes. in the talk. My pastor loves to say structure beats good intentions. And uh, if you can have an agreed upon schedule uh, where at least everybody knows what lane they're supposed to be in, it can help you manage that. We, we had a meeting last night at church. It was our first administration committee meeting of the year. And uh, I along, uh, well, I presented some material along with our wonderful chairman here at Second. And one of the things I did is I said, this is every meeting that's supposed to happen at Second Pres this year. These are the dates. These are the times. These are the uh, locations of those meetings. And the church office, which is me and our administrative assistant, want to help you communicate that to, to the members of your committee. But we can only do that if you tell us if you've canceled the meeting or if you've added someone to the committee or if you've changed where you're meeting. And so let's work together to keep the schedule clean. And of course, nowadays you can put it on a Google calendar and let that be shared to your phone. And uh, you, you can have a level of uh, communication that we never had before. But for sure, the, the point is to, to structure your your activities and and. Uh, you know, agree upon the time that you're going to argue about things with one another. You know, let's just the third Wednesday of the month at eight o'clock, let's just agree that's when we're going to disagree about what the priorities are and then take a vote and then live with one another after that. So absolutely, I resonate with that. Uh, on the one hand, George, I've come to appreciate the fact that a healthy church doesn't have a minister acting like a chief executive in the way a business owner would look like. Uh, really, uh, the, the kind of decisions that ministers are asked to make are frankly not helpful to their ministry. You really don't want the minister having to weigh in on policy things uh, in critical uh, decision-making ways. You want the minister to be a part of those conversations, uh, and you certainly want him to shape it. Uh, but you, you really want to grow your bench. You, you want to deepen your ability of leadership within a church to lead. And, and I've come to the opinion that a good church uh, staff member, uh, you can almost measure their success by how much they're able to get other people involved. Because it's actually very easy for a staff member to do the work themselves. And it will be done quicker um, arguably, it'll be done more efficiently, though that's a that's a in the eye of the beholder kind of thing. 
But if a staff member can empower five people to get involved with something, it's going to be, it's just going to be better. <clears throat> more people are going to own it. More people are going to be a part of it. And uh, you really want members having a sense of ownership in the ministries of the church. Uh, and it, it's a healthier church when you do that. Oh, def definitely. I mean, I, I viewed my job as clearing away the obstacles so people can use their gifts for the kingdom and we're all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. yeah. And, and oftentimes what you have in churches that, that don't have, can't hire somebody into the role that you're in uh, and, and the session isn't able to yeah. do the day to day, you have silos operating and, and they're pulling, they're pulling the ship apart as opposed yeah. to trying to head in the same way. And so I always, I always, I did this in two, uh, in two churches. When I came to Meadowview, I was hired as the executive pastor. The, the story there was, I just really felt the Lord calling me to preach regularly. I, I, I love preaching and I felt that calling. And so I was looking for senior and solo pastor positions and I actually had uh, an offer as a senior pastor. And yet this Meadowview posting came up and it, when I read it, I thought I was reading the job I had just done at, at the other church. I was at St. Andrews, which uh, not the Ligonier one, but, um, and I was like, really Lord, like, I know I can go in and with the mistakes I've already made in one church. And, and I know I can, I know what this church needs, but I thought you were calling me into something different. And, and my wife and I prayed, we submitted that to the Lord and we, we came here thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to be senior pastor because I, I just didn't foresee this this senior pastor leaving, and uh, just the and then in God's providence he made me senior pastor. But in both roles, when I came on, it's like you you it's so easy to look for quick wins yeah. that because if you are administratively gifted, you could see the things that are clogging people up. Yeah, and you have the uh, the authority, the ability to clear away those obstacles and, and really help people. And so in my experience, you really get people on your side. You know, there, there's in the, in my two experiences, there's, there's fear because now there's a new sheriff in town supposedly. Yeah. And then that quickly dissipates. If you uh, don't try to make changes too quick, yeah. don't try to make any, don't really try to change anything. Just try to clear some obstacles away initially. But uh, I'll give you one funny story about that. When I came here, they, uh, there was this one individual who always was like leading and putting on ministries and she was hosting blood drives here. I mean, she was just one of these people you, you love because she's always like, she's just doing what, you know, but she would stick flyers all over the church right. on the urinals on like the same flyer for the, for a blood drive, right. which is a good thing, but okay. So, you know, I was the, everybody was afraid to tell her not to do that. <laughs> So she came into my office the first month there with a stack of them like this, maybe a hundred. And she says, I was told to speak to you about these. And I said, yes, I'm sorry, but we're, we're looking for ways to get the message out through social media and events. And and we have a bulletin board, but no, you, she goes, so I can't put these up. And I said, only in these two places. So she went like this, held it above her head. There was my garbage can below, opened her hand and like a hundred flyers fall in the trash can. And I thought she was like ready to fight with me. And she goes, okay, yeah. it's just good to get an answer. <laughs> and the point was so often people are not given the direction or the answers and things are beaten around, you know? 
often, oftentimes in the church, it's like that because people are doing the best they can and they see a need and they're, they're trying to reach it. Uh, but, but sometimes, sometimes that happens when a ministry is very successful and it kind of dominates the, the board, so to speak. Ah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of thing, frankly, you don't want the senior minister, uh, involved with that. Uh, you need to have someone, you need to have rules and, and you need to, to fairly apply them. Um, as That's a, good. As a general rule, I try to have as few rules as possible, but whatever rules you have, you <laughs> got to enforce. And uh, is, that, is that a melism? Are those a couple of melisms already? Already. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, but before we move on, I, there was something you've said, you, you've uh, hinted at a couple of times, which is what we want the senior pastor doing or not doing. Yeah. And what I appreciate, so now, now I'm the, the lead pastor and I have to not micromanage and trust my people. Uh, but, but I, I am blessed to have a session who wants to protect my pulpit ministry such that they, they're very good about owning the decisions the session makes of which I'm a part. And because I do know that I'm a, I come across as a strong personality. I am obviously type a, uh, they, they, Still don't know how they got what they think is a New Yorker in, in this Southern church, uh, but they love it. Um, but like, so, but they're very careful to not make decisions that we make a George thing. Yeah. Because if people are upset about decisions that are made, it will affect their ability to hear the preaching from the person they think bullied that thing through. Yeah. And that's why I, uh, like I said, and I, and I always viewed my role as the executive pastor to sort of if I, if if there had to be a heavy in something to sort of say, sorry, we're not going to do that to protect the senior pastor from having to have that conversation. Have you found that helpful too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you you know, uh, just think about your favorite, uh, crime drama on TV. There has to be a good cop. There has to be a bad cop (laughs) and somebody has to be, uh, willing and able to, to say no. And, you, you oftentimes have to say no uh, in the church in, in non-essential things. And if you do say no, you ought to have a really good reason and you ought to have uh, a, either a policy manual or a decision of a lawful uh, court uh, that you can appeal to. And uh, I mean, the beautiful thing about the Presbyterian Church, we, we had a session meeting the other night where we had a discussion about hymns played at funerals, uh, a typical uh, kind of black hole discussion for a session. <laughs> yes. And um, our general rule is if the hymn is, uh, you know, in our hymnal, you, you can, you can select it. And uh, we, we had a, an elder who expressed a, a, a particular hymn that he wanted played at his funeral and someone reminded him, you know, you can, you can ask the elders to, to make a decision. Uh, but why don't you just ask the elders to make a decision and, and not make it between your opinion and someone else's opinion. And mm. you, you just, you have to do that. I and mean, in the book of church order, you call that ruling jointly, not severally. And mm-hmm. the decisions of the church should be acts of the session or a staff member trying to apply the act of the session or the principle of the session. That's so good. That and is so good. You from getting in trouble because that way it's not George's point of view or Mel's tendency. 
It's what the session has said needs to be done. And that way, if there's a problem with it, it's really not a problem with George or Mel. It's a problem with the viewpoint of the session. And any member of the church can ask the session uh, to, to make, you know, to hear their point of view on that. And uh, generally speaking, if you, the, the classic example of this, George, I've seen has been in big things, not in little things. So it applies to little things. Um, my church is 100 and it'll be 132 years old this year. And for most of our history, I've told this story before in other contexts, for most of our history, say the first 75 years, we never actually did church discipline as a church. Now, this is the most serious and consequential thing a session does. And the Book of Church Order tells you how to do it. There are ways you can admonish people informally, formally, and then there are other censures that are more severe. And when we first had a minister who led us through the process of biblical church government and applying that through discipline as stipulated by our Book of Church Order, uh, it sent shockwaves through the leadership of our, of our church. Uh, good, people left, and they were good people who left because they had never seen it done before, and they were, they were just shocked by this. And it took about a year, frankly, for our church to just process. We just did an excommunication on someone. Mm -hmm. And um, the next time the same situation happened and the session acted in the same way, zero people uh, responded that way because they recognized there was a pattern of how to do something. The session had resolved to do something biblically and the people were going to work with the session because they trusted them at this point. And you can multiply that through almost any decision in the history of the church. Uh, it, when, when, when you're in church government, you're going to encounter, just like in a hospital, you're going to encounter every kind of human condition. You're going to encounter every kind of moral quandary. And frankly, in, in a much lesser way, in church administration way, you're going to deal with every kind of, um, you know, situation that happens in a home or in a business. You're, you're going to have issues of sharing facilities. You're going to have issues of one part of the family just letting it go for the sake of the other. You're going to have issues of what is a bigger priority, uh, giving somebody a raise or fixing the building. Uh, you're, you're just going to have all of those ordinary, normal kind of operational things to do. A church administrator can make those things better. He can help communicate those things or she, but ultimately it's really the session or the diaconate doing the correct decision that, that makes for good church government. Yes. Wow. That, that's a mini course right there. That's, that's exactly right. You know, my, our experience with church discipline has, has been the same. Sadly, we've, we've had to have an, a number of excommunications uh, last few years and um, the church, it's always interesting because I, I usually announce most of them and I explain it and, and, and it's always a teachable moment for the church. And there's usually like a family that's brand new that yeah. happens to be at that service. And, and you're, you know, and you're always like cringing Yeah. every time it's happened, they've joined the church, yeah. the family. And they, they were just, they said, it's amazing that y'all, y'all do this. And 
what I found is the, the congregation, just like that woman who threw the flyers out in front of me, but she was like, okay, at least I know the congregation appreciates explanation with a pastoral heart of, of what, and again, we can't tell everybody everything, but we can, we can explain things biblically and in such a way that shows like we love the congregation and, and people seem to appreciate it. And they also know where they stand, you know? But the, making those changes are hard, Mel. And that's that's a lot of what our job is, is, is you know, and the change that you described is the fact that church discipline wasn't done and now you're going to do it. Yeah. And, and you know, but any change is difficult for a church. How, how do you uh, how do you go about having to re, to shift resources, which affects one ministry or contingent? Yeah. at the priority of another, because that's the vision of the church. How, how do you do that? Well, if your church has a process for making decisions, learn that process, master that process, speak into that process and correct the error through the process. Um, you, know, you know, our church is super big about spending only what we plan to spend. That's just the culture of our church. And we take great pride every year and uh, uh, at the end of the year, if we've not spent the money we plan to spend in the budget, we celebrate that. That's a big deal. Uh, but what that means is, is in the fall of every year, there are going to be about a dozen different meetings starting at committee levels and then going to the DAC and then going to the session where we're going to go through every line. We literally have a meeting where we go through every line in the budget. And it's hard. Because it's it, that's a lot of energy for a for a line item related to you know cookies for a Sunday school class, but we deliberately do that. And you have a moment in the life of a church. A leadership committee meets. It sets its priority for the coming year. It counts the cost. It, it here's how much is it, it's going to cost to build the tower. Uh, to quote the Jesus is teaching on that in Luke 14 and. You then present that to the elders and you have a chance to say, you know, we don't need to do this program this year for this reason. And we try really hard in my church, uh, and I think it's a good principle for any church, to have those meetings in the meetings. Don't do it in the hallway. Don't do it in the parking lot. Hmm. Make, make your leadership meeting have purpose. Um, I mean, George, how, how much interest have we seen from ruling elders the last few years coming to PCA General Assemblies, because they know that there are meaningful, serious theological issues that are going to, that they're going to have a chance to vote on and shape their church, whether that relates to the federal vision or side B gay Christianity or women officers, ruling elders are going to have a chance to get involved and to speak on that. Well, people involved in, in the church want to do that on the local level too. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the ideal way to do it, that you ask me, what do you do with a program that needs to go away? Uh, the, the easy answer to that is outlive, outwork and outlove whoever's in charge of that process. Um, awesome. most programs don't live forever. Uh, and we can be thankful for that, but most programs that have been around a long time are, have been around a long time because there's somebody who really loves and they really you know, God has really, in their view, set on their heart this outreach or this ministry or this extravagant gesture. They really enjoy doing that. 
Um, one, one thing I try to do is I try to remind everybody who's involved as a volunteer at some point, and we have some uh, folks who've been volunteers in this church for 40 years, George. That's, that's the kind of church I'm a part of. But I try to remind all of them that at some point, somebody's going to follow you. And you need to be thinking about people who you can prepare and pass along what you've done. And sometimes just suggesting to people and reminding people uh, that is helpful. Um, you know, there, there are in any church, and it particularly this burden is going to fall on ministers, programs that the minister just wish wasn't there. And what, what you've got to do is, is uh, patiently understand that program, celebrate it where you can, try to make it better. And then uh, the best way to solve a situation like that is through attrition. If there's a program that needs to go away, oftentimes if you wait long enough, when it comes time to make a change, you can prayerfully consider, does the church really need to spend time, talent, and treasure of sustaining this or not. Uh, and, and sometimes I think that's the best way to approach problems like that. Yes, that's, that's very, very helpful. Uh, are you familiar with the book Canoeing the Mountains? Have you seen I'm that? not, but tell me about that. Uh, I think I think the, the, the author's name was Todd Bolsinger. Um, he's not, not PCA, not, um, but... It, it's an odd title, but the, the, the paradigm of the book is the Lewis and Clark expeditions where they're seeking, I guess it was the Northwest Passage. And so, and they're, they're, they're going across the country in canoes and they hit the Rockies. Right. And so what good are canoes to cross the Rockies? In other words, we have, we're, we're using the wrong tools, you know, and there could be a reaction right now as I'm saying this to say like, well, we, we got to try new methods to reach people. Now, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what the book says. But the book acknowledges that administratively factors on the ground, things have changed. And so how to navigate transition and change in the church. And there's this, there's a couple of quotes that are just awesome in there. But one that he says is people, we, we think people fear change. But people actually don't fear change, they fear loss. And and what he means by that, and, and this has been my experience, whether it was in industry or in ministry, is when when change comes, people are thinking about what, what they're losing. And so often, so many people, all of us, our identities are wrapped up in a in in a, in a ministry, in a way of service, in a in a thing. Uh, we see the benefit of it, we see how we can contribute. And now you're taking that from us. Yeah. And in a world and in a culture where the old is constantly being thrown out for the new and the flashy, it's hard for people to separate, you know, but the takeaway for me is if I can pitch a positive vision about what we gain by the change that actually does scratch some of the itches of what people are afraid of that they're losing in the change, uh, th that is, that has helped us navigate these things. Um, also, it, it's helped us that we have had a, a recommitment here at this church to things like the BCO and our Westminster standards, because the people at Meadowview love the word. They loved our reformed heritage. Some of that wasn't as, as well emphasized before me. And now when they're saying, oh, that's what our standards say, yeah. that's how we view worship. Yeah. That's how we 
are supposed to do this. Yeah. Okay. You know, there, there, there's some good guidance there. And so getting the buy-in of people for the vision, for the, the, um, not necessarily the rules, but the guide rails for yeah. how we make decisions has, has been helpful in my own experience. Uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, scratching an itch that I love to try to scratch. And that is that the, the BCO and the reform faith and the reform heritage, it works every time you try. And, mm. uh, it's always good to go to that. Uh, a, a common expression we use in this church when we approach change is that we're not changing for the sake of change. We're changing for the sake of need. So our, our, we always approach it from the standpoint, if we can demonstrate that we're doing this because we need to do it and hear the reasons why most of our people go along with it. Um, we, we have a, a relative to our side, a, a size, a, a huge officer core. I mean, when, when the deacons and the elders and the, 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 the assistant ministers and, and uh, the, the stakeholders, if you will, and the leadership come together, it's about 50 people. And the, the, what tends to happen is that if the officers are for, and then we're one of those churches that we tend to not do things if it's a six to four vote. You know, we, we, we don't like to do things we, we don't get worked up about an eight to two vote, but a six to four vote, somebody's going to say, guys, do we really want to do this because we're pretty evenly divided on it. <clears throat> and that deliberateness, I think, has helped us when we've approached change because our people know, you know, to get the overwhelming supermajority of the deacons and the elders to do something, there is almost near certainty that it's the right thing to do. Um, and the other thing, George, that I, I would say to you is this church doesn't have the uh, the spirit of the age. We have a lot of problems, but we don't have the particular spirit of the age problem of novelty and the need to invent new things. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am convinced that one of the issues with burnout, with, with even in, with PCM ministers, is the need to be imaginative and creative every week instead of just ordinary means of grace, meet and three Christianity. And I, I think a lot of churches get sucked into thinking, you know, even though a good reform minister knows that he shouldn't get his cues from Andy Stanley or Steve Furtick or all these knuckleheads, uh, respectfully, <laughs> um, they, uh, I, I think we're tempted by that. I think we're, you know, uh, just like certain kind of churches are tempted by, a high church direction. I think other churches are tempted by novelty in in low church Americana, and uh, the the truth is, the people aren't coming for that. Um, I remember the first time I ever took a friend of mine to a Clemson football game. We were we were not good that season, and we were in the stadium, and the stadium holds about eighty five thousand people, and it was only two thirds full. And the, I was, it was a couple and the couple are, they were brilliant entrepreneurs and they made the comment to me, Mel, people are coming to this game, not because Clemson is, has a good football team, but because of all the things around the game, the theater, the, all the, the, mm. the, the pageantry of a, of a Clemson college football game. And I said to him, no, they're coming to this game because they love Clemson and we can get 65,000 people out for a Clemson-NC State game when neither team is any good. 
but if we were good, this place would be filled. And, and there's a sense in which you really want people, you know, James Boyce famously said, what you win them with, you win them too. And if you teach people to love the simple things of grace, if you teach people to love the sound of the congregation singing praise to God, if you teach people that you can actually have a scenario where an 80-year-old woman and a four-year-old girl can pray together and it can have spiritual dynamism, if you teach people the power of an entire session showing up for a, pray, uh, for a, a funeral uh, by a graveside, if you teach people the value of having a meal together and sharing life in the context of God's word, that's what's going to make them change. It, it's mm. not going to be that you've got a LED board in the lobby that does the schedule and has information about the upcoming ski trip. Uh, or you've got a QR code on the back of the pew. It, it's going to be life and, and life informed by God's goodness, grace and mercy and a minister opening up the word. And because hopefully a PCA minister is going to be educated and scholarly, people are going to learn and they're going to be drawn to good things, not to novelty or jokes or experience. Community is a byproduct of good church life. It's not the object of church life. And uh, just like when you figure out that if you love the Lord, you'll love your wife better. Uh, so too, if people realize that the purpose of the church isn't about their felt needs, but exalting a glorious and great God, it makes for a better church. And so where am I going with all that? A church You're preaching. You're preaching. Preaching, but I'm preaching because a church administrator in any context, anywhere, needs to understand that. The, the, the journey is not the message. The, the, right. the, the, the point of it is you're drawing people to the Lord, and you're going to do that by the, by the Lord's methods of doing that. And that's not novelty. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have really nice programs. I mean, we, we, we used to make a real big deal about saying we're not a program-driven church. And I think I can justify that theologically that, you know, there are other churches in town that have better youth programs or women's programs or sports programs. But you, when you do a program, you want to do it well. But what you don't want to do is do church for the sake of programs. You're, you're, getting, the, you're getting the cart before the horse if you do that. And a church administrator needs to understand that. A, a church administrator needs to be just as prayerfully committed to the means of grace as the minister is. And he needs to be excited or she needs to be excited about helping the minister do his job. If there's a young minister, you want to get involved in the life of that young minister. You want to help them sort of earn their spurs and, and help them find opportunities and help them grow. Um, and, but you, you want to, you want to get excited about being, behind the scenes and off the stage, not being up on the platform yourself. Yeah. Wow. That was beautiful. That, that was beautiful. And what I was thinking as you were saying about those things that are, will be attractive. It's like, that's what we really have to offer the world Yeah, yeah. is, is, is those ordinary means of grace lived out in the life of a community, worshiping the Lord while loving one another and wanting to share that, like, that's, what's different. That's, what's not in the world. Yeah. And when we try to 
bring the world into the church. I've never seen it done well. I mean, it, when I was in South Florida, I worked at one of the largest churches in, in the country and it was awesome. I mean, it, it had a, a graphics department and audio visual stuff, but you know what? I mean, it's, you're just competing with the world on those, on those levels. And yet we have so much greater to offer the church. And by the way, if I have any friends that are listening from that place, I loved working there too. Right. Uh, I'm just saying what we're going to attract them to is, is the gospel should be attractive um, while it confronts our hearts and people yeah. submit under it. It's, it is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Amen. Oh, I, I had a comment to, to one thing I had to learn because I, and, and you came from, from the business world too, is one thing that was difficult for me early on was we would set direction and have vision and goals for where we wanted to go. And, you know, in, in, in the business world, it's, you know, whatever, good to great, like get on the bus or get off the bus. Yeah. You know? yeah. And people in that case are either facilitating to get, achieve the goal or they're an obstacle to the goal. And what I learned, and it was through the help of, of other uh, elder elders in my life is the, the people are the goal. Their, their discipleship is, is the goal. We're, we're called to teach everyone, admonish everyone, presenting them complete in Christ. So if this person is not willing to come along, that is now a discipleship opportunity uh, for us and a sanctification opportunity for that person. And yeah, th there may be a point that person needs to leave, but I, I think we need to not have that mentality that volunteers are employees who either need to agree or not agree or, you know, get out of the way. And, uh, and so how that's helped me reframe ministry is, I actually don't mind the conflict anymore. I mean, I don't want it. You know what I mean? But it's like, ooh, this is revealing something about somebody's heart. Somebody's hurting here. What's the real issue? How as a pastor can I help this person um, see those things, find satisfaction in Christ, and come along with what the Lord is doing here? And oh, by the way, am I, what, how am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong in some of this, you know? And then that's sanctification opportunity for myself. And so, but but I run across this with not simply administrators, but even with, with senior pastors, when people aren't catching their vision, uh, those people can be viewed as problems. And, and believe me, congregants do cause us problems. <laughs> I'm not denying that. But how we view that is, uh, I think, very important. Any thoughts on that? Well, if your congregation feels that a person in leadership views them as either a problem or a project, it ain't going to work. I think the way to view it is people need to view themselves as partners. Uh, a good congregation minister, a good congregation should should be deferential towards the ministers, the elders of the church, but they should view themselves as part of, of the strategy and part of the mm. solution. Um, and, and that means that the, there really shouldn't be a lot of closed doors in, in ministry. Now, there's going to be uh, organizational hierarchies and the bigger, the bigger the church is, a little bit more complex that is. I, I guess where I'm going with that is um, be as inclusive as you can, but what you can do is point to the principles and uh Again, let me go back to something I've said before. If, if the people view what you're doing as the officer saying this is a need of the church, if they see you acting on behalf of need that has a biblical warrant, I think they're going to go along with it. Um, look, 
churches are going to have conflict. People are going to volunteer for the wrong reasons. People are going to do things even in the church for, for motives that aren't godly. If people are negligent in their duties, you should lovingly chide them, uh, help them, and then say, I'm sorry, we've got to do something different and do that in a loving way. You talk about how conflict is not a cause of aversion for you. You know, a lot of ministers are so conflict averse, they can't ever exercise authority. Oh, that's true. And, and frankly, a lot of young ministers who've grown up without fathers don't know how to exercise authority. Mm. So, you know, as a church administrator, one of the things I want to do in my capacity as an elder and a mentor to younger men is I want to make sure younger men learn how to exercise authority in a godly way. So there's something of a response to that, George. Yeah, I, I find a lot of people, I mean, look, I don't like conflict, but people know I'm willing to walk into it because if I love that person, it's very easy to see if, 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 if we're trying to do something, the session or a pastor or whatever, and somebody is opposing that now we're, we're in, we're, we're, it's almost like we're enemies yeah. and it's not, it's, it's an opportunity now to do pastoral ministry with somebody. So I, yeah. George, yeah. I'll say this. Um, if you're doing ministry, right. I don't know if I'd say enemy, but you're going to have critics. Critics. If, that's a good, yeah. You're, if you have credit, if you're doing your job, right, you're going to have critics. Uh, my wife often will remind me, Mel, having a critic is actually good for you, not bad for you. It's good for you in a positive and a negative way. It's positive in the standpoint that you need to remember somebody's watching what you're doing. And that should be a motivation for you not to make a category error in your job, whether that's a small thing or a great thing. Uh, at, at the same time, you've got to learn from your critics. Uh, and, and uh, especially in the context of the church, criticism is awfully given in the context of a very personal, oftentimes sentimental, sometimes illogical, but a deeply personal reason. And sometimes uh, it's it's just that you've you've it's an issue of oversight. You've not remembered. You've not been as sensitive to, to in certain things as you can. And it's never a bad idea to slow down and think through, all right, is this arbitrary deadline so important that we can't just slow down and get everybody on the cart so that somebody doesn't feel left out? Uh, I, you know, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, George. And in Lord of the Rings, there's this strange group of people called Ents. They're kind of tree-ish creatures that talk and walk. And the big deal is that they take a long time to do anything. <laughs> and they're, in that sense, they're very Presbyterian. They, yes. they are very deliberative in their debate. And they frankly enjoy debate, or, or at least in their case, like talking to one another way too much. Uh, but when they do act, they act in a uniform, monolithic way that is an amazing thing to see. And sometimes, not oftentimes, not a lot of the times, but sometimes the church does that. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. And it, it, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, you never forget it. When the church acts correctly, uh, when it both uh, stewards, pastors, communicates well, but most importantly, exalts, exalts Christ well. Amen. 
So two two more things I want to do on this yeah. on this discussion. One, I want to just a couple of pointers for maybe churches that don't have people in this role because that would be most of them. Yeah. And then two, I want to I want to talk through some melisms. Yeah. But uh, so that so that first one again, like churches that are probably uh, under three hundred people and don't have an executive pastor, executive director, church administrator, whatever that title is. What, what are, do you have any ideas or guidance? I have some ideas, but I, what are some ideas and guidance you may have for them I, to help them? Yeah, I, I would walk you to the New Testament and I would say, we have a problem and we need deacons is where I would begin. And I would sit down with the deacons and say, if, if you don't have structure, <clears throat> I would get guidelines from other PCA churches and how they organize themselves. And, uh, and then you walk through what structure is going to look like. And what you're going to do is you're going to say, Deacon A, you're Mr. Property. And Deacon B, uh, you're Mr. Money. And Deacon C, uh, you're Mr. Fellowship. And, and you're going to, whatever the needs of the church are, organizationally, you're going to challenge them to figure it out. And uh, that's where it must begin because uh, staff cannot do for a church what God-ordained officers are supposed to do. So good. Uh, really, what staff is supposed to do is to teach, instruct, and resource officers to, to do what they're supposed to do. Um, so that's where I would begin with that. Um, you know, most churches in America are 75 to 100 members, George. And when you dig a little deep in that, you realize that most people want to be in a 75 to 100 member church. And that means that churches like that are going to have to figure out how to have a bivocational minister, how volunteers are going to have to lead in the upkeep of the facility and, and paying down the mortgage and all the things that go in terms of ownership and facilities and rent and all of those things. So um, what I would say to you is, is make it work. Uh, Rick Phillips likes to say, uh, plan to work and then work the plan. You know, come up with a system. Don't be so wedded to it that you can't adjust it. But it needs to begin with deacons taking care of the building and the property and the ownership things in the church. And then it needs to be elders who have been taught that you're you're an equal shareholder in, in a two office view of a denomination that has to have you involved spiritually in the life of the people. So you want to you want to teach your ruling elders to do hospitality. You want to take your ruling elders on a hospital visit and say you need to understand we're talking to someone for the last time, and I'm trying to. Uh, I want to show you how to share my your Christian faith with a brother who's soon about to be dead. You you want to you want to give those experiences to your ruling elders, and the only way to do that is just to get involved with them spiritually, and then hopefully they're going to be empowered to shepherd the way you shepherd in the church. Ah, that, that's really good. I love the focus on the diaconate too, and so what I would add to that would be, you know, I think the senior pastor or the pastor or the solo pastor, whatever need, needs a, uh, I mean, the whole session, everybody's on the session, equal vote, equal say, but I do think there needs to be a smaller group that is helping advise in the day-to-day -day operations, the pastor, because a lot of those decisions don't fall to the diaconate, right. you know? And so 
you know, that I know that was helpful to the senior pastor in South Florida as we had an, an, an AC, an administrative yeah. committee of the session, not making all the decisions for the yeah. session. That's what everybody yeah. is upset, freaks out about. That's not what it was, but it's how, helping the pastor make good decisions. And then what it gave the senior pastor was the ability to say, uh, the, the session decided, you know, uh, if it's a commission or something, um, because, you know, you, you, you want to protect your, you want to protect your pastor. And I say that as a, as a lead pastor, but I also say it as having a more experience in two, in two churches of being an executive pastor, trying to protect the senior pastor from appearing like he's on an Island and he's the bad guy. And so, yeah, well, I, I can imagine a, a number of good conversations we might be able to have you and I, Mel, but I know you're a busy guy and you're doing podcasts everywhere. So uh, let, let's get into Melisms. What, yeah, yeah. You, you got, I, I put these in, I numbered them. Yeah. There was 64 of them. Oh my And, uh, and I think you, I think you dropped a bunch on, on us already. I, I really like the Harry Reader thing you said, how TEs are being REs and REs are being deacons. That's right. Yeah. I, that, I heard that. I heard him say that 20 years ago and I've never forgotten. Of course, if you've heard Harry reader and you've been up close to him, you never forget Harry. Uh, I miss him so much, George. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I've been blessed by having some just fun uh, male authority figures in my life. And I picked up things and I get to work with Rick Phillips, who's a former army guy. And so he's always saying something that, is shockingly helpful in a kind of an earthy way. Um, you know, one of his favorite uh, expressions is bad news does not get better with age. And so if, if there's, <laughs> if there's a, something that's happened, you know, if, if somebody has, uh, if there's been a moral scandal, if there's been an issue of a crime being broken, sitting on that is not going to make any different. I mean, it's only going to make it worse. And so yes. there are certain kind of things that, in any job, but particularly in the church, you stop, you get up and, and you go help. A lot, a lot of times when death is involved, that's just whatever it is you're doing, you stop and, and you go help. Uh, it, mm. it, it's the case that, uh, you, know, you know, it's an HR kind of thing. You, you just have to prioritize it and deal with it. And that's one of my favorite uh, Rick Phillipsisms. Um, Another one of his that uh, that I like to to say from time to time is let your form be your function. Um, you know, churches and older churches and second is an older church. Sometimes certain positions are kind of honorary positions, but they really don't do anything. Um, and and you you want to make sure that you know you, you don't kind of get into the into the pattern of creating positions that don't really do anything. Um, and, and so if, if you have a deacon, he needs to be acting like a deacon. If you have a Sunday school teacher, he needs to be acting like a Sunday school teacher. The flower chairman should be in charge of flowers and, and so forth. And, uh, I mean, this, honestly, when we talk about women deacons in the PCA, this is one of those sayings that often comes to my mind that, that, that there, there are not women deacons in the Bible and, I know there are people who disagree with that, and I know that's a theological argument above my pay grade, but in the PCA, the diaconate is an ordained office. Ordination is a symbol of authority. You should exercise the authority that's been granted to you, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a Phillipsism. Um, one of my, uh, uh, and, and this is actually, it, it's come to mind in light of the DASA report and all the horror stories that we hear about abuse issues of the church. 
if a crime has been broken, and I'm talking about abuse or assault, the kind of things that a minister or a church staff member encounters in, in pastoral ministry, what you should do is call the police. Um, I've done this twice in my career. It's mm. not an easy thing to do. It is a horrendous thing to do. But it would have been more horrendous if I had tried to do the job that the police has been instituted with the authority of society to do. So if, if someone has physically assaulted someone in such a way, or there are allegations of, of an even more heinous nature, uh, the Lord has ordained the civil magistrate to rule in certain areas of society. And so my first response to folks who are trying to think through best practices with issues of sexual abuse or, or heinous allegations that are unspeakable is that the first thing the church should do is recognize the sovereignty sphere of the police or the criminal agency over that particular crime. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, George, uh, we've got a group of highly motivated people in the PCA that are trying to think through novel new notions of church discipline. It's interesting, some of these churches actually don't practice church discipline in other areas, and that's okay, I guess. But what, what we really need to be doing first is not granting the church new authority and new regimes and things that the police ought to be doing. So, so I want to be real clear about that in the context of this little witticism of mine. So let, let me, let me flip. So I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly and that should be very freeing. If, if don't try to deal with the crime as church discipline. You can right. deal with the moral aspect of it, but give right. it to the authorities. And equally, don't try to make the church courts uh, the right. civil courts. The civil court or and, court. And, yeah. Right. They, they, more and more, there, there, there's a desire to bring in methodologies from the civil realm into the ecclesial realm. I don't know if it's to you know, show the world where, but we have a different function. And we answer to a higher authority. And I, I actually try to practice this principle in different ways. One is, whether it's a new employee or at Presbytery, I'll do this every other year. I'll just publish what are the rules for ministers in terms of reporting things mm. to law enforcement. So, uh, but, but that's something that I, I like to say to people. If somebody breaks the law, call the police. Um, so... Um, Here's one that, that Rick Phillips says to me all the time, and it's the Lord speaking to David about not taking an, an unbiblical census. Uh, and, and, you know, there's that passage about, you know, there, that David, David wanted to see how much wealth and power he had, and he wanted to do that for his own reasons, but the Lord didn't want him to do that because it's not about the glory of David, it's about the glory of God. And, and that's actually where this expression has come from, that we need to do things based on need not on church preferences. Um, let's see. What's a, um, let me give you some. Fun. Well, let me let me just tell you. What, I mean, this is not so much as a, a statement as a yeah. as it is a principle. But it says very few people, in parentheses, maybe less than half, listens to announcements. Keep them very short. <laughs> and I love this because I don't know how many times in in uh, t- almost ten years I've been doing this yeah. that. Somebody said, well, we can't get any volunteers for this. Or can you make an announcement about this? And right. we don't have any help. And I'd say, because you have to ask people. Right, 
Right. Me standing up there or, well, we, we've had it in the bulletin. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But the power of asking a human being who yeah. you know yeah. and you, you see a gift in and say, I'd love for you to help me with this or we really need help with this. Now there's ownership. You, you must have been spying on me on my administration committee meeting last night. You know, we're, we, everybody in the our church year begins in the fall, but we're a January to December budget year. So our budget year begins in January. Yes, yes. And a lot of organization things kind of get restarted in January. And uh, every ministry in our church right now is trying to get new volunteers. And uh, we're all co- competing with one another and everybody wants their ministry promoted. And I'm happy to do that. But I, I said exactly what you said, that yes. the best way to do that is to uh, come up beside someone and, and if appropriate, put your arm around them and say, <laughs> uh, I have a, a job for you to do and I want you to consider volunteering in the nursery or I want you to work on the safety team or I want you to help out with the men's ministry or we need you to teach Sunday school. Uh, yeah, the, the way people respond is 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 if someone they know and who they love and respect uh, ask them to do something that that tends to be how people do it. I I call it the three announcement rule. Uh, I, I actually have been given the authority to develop the announcement before Sunday services. And I've said this is not going to be like the side of a car on a NASCAR race. You know, we are not going to have 17 announcements. You get three. And we're going to prioritize them and they need to, to they, you know, if, if you're canceling a meeting and that involves 10 people, I'm not going to announce that. No, right. Tell the 10 people. That's right. You just, people. yeah. Oh, I, I can't say right before church. My mind is on prayer and the sermon. Right. Get, get yes. Phone out. And, but we're not going to do that, that we're not going to, we're not going to do right. clean up on aisle three uh, before the, the Lord's yeah. service. Yeah. Happens. You can contact, you can email groups of 20 or less, like, you know, a couple of things I would say, uh, that, that I've observed and I like to say is that officer training should be difficult. I think Mm. there's a tendency in churches to make it as easy as possible, but I actually think if you make it harder, they'll have a greater sense of satisfaction that they've mastered something and that they've been given, uh, credentials, lawful credentials, which is what ordination is. Um, one of our older uh, ruling elders had a rule that we've always honored here is that if a meeting begins, it must end by a certain time. And if the meeting extends, there has to be a super majority to extend the meeting. And so we plan uh, for a session meeting or a deacon meeting at Second Pres may not last longer than three hours. Now, oftentimes they don't go that long, but we just we say, look, if we can't get it done in three hours, we we probably shouldn't be fussing with one another about it anyway. Uh, another little melism is don't don't hold a meeting unless there's an agenda. Don't put together an agenda unless you're going to vote on something. And if you're not going to vote on something, don't hold a meeting. Uh, I like that. You, you just shouldn't have meetings to, to hold a meeting. Uh, stated meetings are always better than called meetings. Now, this is kind of Presby jargon. A steady, a stated meeting is a meeting that's planned to happen at the same time, each time, whether it's quarterly or monthly or weekly, called meetings inevitably involve some hot button issue that's come up. If you can make those go to stated meetings so that you don't wear your people out uh, with color of the carpet, Thursday night meeting type issues, it's just going to be better. Uh, the called meetings are like sugar. They give you a rush, but 
man, when it wears off, do you, do you bottom out after that? Um, everyone should know who's going to be leading the meeting, whether that's a chairman or a moderator. Uh, people should know who, who is in charge of the meeting before they get there. Um, that, so but let me just add to that because that's, I mean, obviously if it's a session meeting, it's the moderator, but I have been in a number of meetings where, uh, you know, four elders form an ad hoc committee or commission for something. And it's, and we're going to meet with a member or something and we go into it and somebody's like, well, who's, who's leading this thing, right. you know? You I mean, I, so no, question. right. And so I always try to like, if I got these three guys, I'm like, okay, do you want to lead that? Or would you right. like me to? Right. And at least that way there's somebody right. who's the quarterback. And the reason we do that at second is that we don't want a motion coming to the session meeting just like we don't want a motion in Presbytery coming to the Presbytery meeting that somebody hasn't considered before it gets there. That's good. If, if something's dealing with a teacher or curriculum or uh, space allocation, we don't want to do that in the committee of the whole. We want somebody to have thought through that, recommended it, and that way we know this has legs on it. We're, we're not winging this at the meeting. I, I just did. I just had that today where something was requested to be on our docket for next week. And I said, well, really, this just needs to go to this committee. And, and, uh, but you know, and and yeah, that, and that's another mellism, George, teach your people the jargon of Presbyterianism. If, if you can get a teenage boy at Meadowview to know that in order to get his issue raised, he needs to go to the clerk of your session and ask for something to be docketed. You have done your job as a, (laughs) Elder. Uh, okay, I'll put, I'll put that on my list for this year. <laughs> uh, build things that last is a mellism, and I'm sure I've gotten it from a thousand different places. It's better to do less and to put more time into it and solve the problem. I, my, my mother went to be with the Lord last year, and I, I was reflecting on her over the holidays. And when she would sweep the steps, the front porch steps at my house, she did it so thoroughly that that leaves from trees in my yard knew not to fall onto those steps <laughs> after she did it. She just did things for it to last. And uh, oftentimes in churches, we think the quick fix is the option, when in reality, you really kind of need to get to the heart of why this is breaking down over and over. And And inevitably, it's an issue of a volunteer can't do it or you're asking your volunteers to do too much, but you've got to, when you do things in the church, you ought to be able to do them over and over again, and they ought to be able to sustain themselves so that it's not simply fixing things with duct tape and rubber bands all the time. Yeah. Mel, let me get, let me grab one from you. There's the last one. A happy, a happy member is a busy member, but make sure busy members are experiencing the means of grace. This has been very important to me, not only as a administrator hat, but my pastoral hat. And I know maybe if you're in a smaller church, it's, it's harder to do this, but I don't, I, I, I've said it. I I told my volunteers, I tell myself, I don't want people living in the children's wing, in the nursery. I don't want people living in the tech booth. People need to just, there's a habit of wanting to do, 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 especially among a certain, certain group of people. And I need people to just sit and receive, hear the word preached without having to feel like you're yeah. tinkering with because I don't want them to view worship through that lens. This is what I always do. And, and I want them to realize that Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and I actually 
also have in mind not only the volunteer, but in a medium-sized church, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking about other staff members. Yes. You know, I try very hard to guard their days off. I try very hard to when they're on vacation, you know, it, it, it's somebody else's problem. It's not your problem. And uh, the, the, the people, you know, you, I tend to put it in, in the category of your Marines and your church, your spiritual Marines. You've got to make sure that they're getting fed because they do so much of the work for others that you don't want them to be emptied. And they got to be fed. They got to be work. fed and they need to be in church and they don't need to be ushering or, or running the sound room. Security, whatever. Security or the hundred different things that have to be done. So Right. Yeah. Amen. Uh, you got a last one or two for us as we wrap up? You know, um, I'll tell you one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, there was a Sunday at second back in the 1980s where we had a baptism and somebody forgot to put water in the baptismal font. <laughs> and so one of our godly ruling elders literally passed a motion at a session meeting that we're going to put water in the baptismal font every Sunday, even if we aren't baptizing a baby until Jesus comes back. And it kind of keeps you thinking about the important things. You know, it's a symbolic mm. act, but we're ready for it. Should, for whatever reason, we need to do it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll end with a Rick Phillipsism that I love. If you come to church every Sunday, you can only backslide so far in your Christian life. And it's true. And if you can just get them going to church, it's probably all going to work out, George. That's that <laughs> we're going to end on that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Mel, you're, you're always a joy to speak to. Uh, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your wisdom. And uh, thank you for your service to the church, not just your local church, but to your presbytery and to the denomination. Well, thank so thanks, you, George. A delight to be with you. Appreciate what you do and look forward to seeing you down the road. If you want to know the worth of a seminary, go take a look at their graduates. Our graduates are all over the world. They're planting churches. They're revitalizing churches. They're translating the Bible. They're starting discipleship movements. It's heart-shaking, life-changing, and just mind-expanding of what God is doing. You know, sometimes I really do have to pinch myself that what I get to do with the ministries at BTS, the engaging with the students and the impact that God uses us to have on the lives of our students, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, and it's a joy. Jesus is still building his church. So we need to equip the pastor teachers who equip the saints. We need to equip the elders who shepherd the church. And I am grateful that Birmingham Theological Seminary is available to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God in these very crucial days 